2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. If I were to go around this room and ask the question, what is your biggest fear? I would love to know what you would come up with. Because most of the time when I say biggest fear, you, you instantly go with what is most trivial. I used to ask this question when I would lead small group, hey, what's your biggest fear? It's kind of like an icebreaker. And I was always amazed at what people would answer. I remember we had one uh, person who's actually one of our small group leaders now say that he was afraid of Kermit the Frog. And um, I just thought that was the weirdest fear. Why would you be afraid of Kermit the Frog? But we pray for him. Um, I have a fear for myself of needles. Like, I can't stand even the thought of a needle. I mean, if you even touch me right here on the arm, I just have a, like a jolt reaction, like my veins, like the sin into my body. Like, I can't, if you put up a needle on this podium as a prank, like I would not get near the podium. And I would probably say something that you should not hear in church. So don't do that. So, but I, I, I have that fear. I used to have a fear of, of I still do, of sharks. Like, I'm, I'm really afraid of sharks. I grew up watching Jaws as a kid. It's traumatized me for life. I, I have this thing where, um, like, if I'm in any sort of tank of water, whether it be a pool, like, I swear there's a great white in there. Somehow it's just maybe there's, like, a cage that, like, extended to the ocean, and he got in, and he's going to eat me somehow. And, like, I have this dream of, like, this vivid image of, like, the shark eating off parts of my limbs, and so my body's floating down as I see my limbs floating above me with blood coming down. Like, I know it's morbid that that's like a fear that I like legit have. Like, sharks, and like, if you even put me in the ocean, I feel seaweed on my leg. Like, I swear it's like a shark. So I like scream like a 12 year old girl in the ocean. And so we all have these sort of weird fears that can often like petrify us. But when I ask about fears, most of the time we think of those sorts of things, but we rarely go to what we're really afraid of. We rarely go to the heart of what we actually fear. Modern psychologists, when they talk about fear, they actually talk about literally five base fears. And here's a quick little pyramid that kind of shows you. First of all, you have the fear at the very bottom of extinction. extinction. That's death, okay? Automobile accident getting eaten by a shark, or the, last, the next one above it is mutilation, something bad happening to you, torture happening to you, some, some intense pain happening to you. Another one is a loss of autonomy, which is a loss of control, being trapped. And the other two, which you'll find very interesting, and what modern psychologists a fear of separation with the most on a regular basis is one would be a fear of separation, which is actually rejection, someone rejecting us, a loved one rejecting us, someone that's close to us, not approving of us. And that other one is uh, ego death, which is actually a fear of shame. And that's what others think of us. And what modern psychologists are now saying is they're saying, hey, the first two are the things that we actually think about the most. The first two are actually the things that occupy our thoughts every day. And those are the things that we really are afraid of. And here's why I say that. Because you're not thinking about sharks every single day. You're not thinking about Kermit the Frog every single day, right? If you are, we'll talk after, okay? You're not thinking about needles every day. You're not thinking about spiders every day. But you're thinking about these things all the time. You're thinking about, man, I hope I don't say something I shouldn't say. I hope I didn't sound stupid. I hope I didn't sound um, foolish when I said that. I, I, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be known because someone knows me. They might not love me. They might not like me. 
I don't want someone to dis- disapprove of me. I don't want someone to reject me. And so what ends up happening? We end up being crippled by those fears. And so we try to navigate our lives around those fears. And what, what we do with that is we say, well, because I'm afraid that someone's going to disapprove of me, I'll talk myself up. I might lie a little bit so I can appear better than what I think I actually am. Or maybe we try to appease other people and try to be a people pleaser because we don't want any type of rejection. Maybe we hide so that we're not known, so we're not exposed. Maybe we become wallflowers, or maybe we do the opposite. Maybe we overcompensate so we can become the life of the party so that everyone will accept us and that everyone will love us. You know what controls all of that? Fear. Fear can control all of that. And this is amazing how powerful fear is when we let it control us. And all of these things are what we face on some level, if we're honest, every single day of our lives. And if we're not careful, fear can be an epidemic. And so then what is the cure for fear? Well, Scripture actually sums up the cure for fear in one word, and it's love. First John, John is laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, this is the hope that you have in the gospel of Christ. And he talks about fear in response to the gospel. He says this in verse, first John 4, verse 17. He says, by this, he says, so that we may have confidence. By this is love perfected within us. That's the gospel. And he says, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So the confidence that one day we're going to see Christ because he is also are we in this world? There is no fear in what? Love. Then he says, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So what does John say that cast out fear? He says, love. He says, perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so what we're afraid of, he's saying, we've misapplied the gospel truth. And so if we have fear of approval from others, it's because we're not seeing the approval that we have in Christ. If we're, if we're afraid of rejection from others, we, we're not seeing that we've been loved and accepted and cherished by Christ. And so all of this comes down to our lack of understanding Standing of the perfect love that God has given us. And so that truth is really going to be the backdrop of where we're going this morning because in the life of David, David is, begins to see God's perfect love for him. And what that does with David is, is it causes him not to fear others. It's this beautiful truth that we're going to see um, in the life of David. And so the big idea of where we're going is how God's love helps us overcome our fears. Now, let me bring you up to speed on what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We started off this series in, in, chapter, four, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And David, in chapter four, 16 of 1 Samuel, is anointed king over Israel. He's a young shepherd boy. Israel already has a king. His name's Saul. Saul's not obeying the Lord, and Saul is leading uh, Israel in a bad direction. And so God anoints David, which means he gave him a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit to then lead God's people. The problem is David has to wait. David has to wait for Saul to no longer become, no longer be king. 
And what happens in 1 Samuel is Saul knows that David will eventually replace him and he becomes jealous of him. He plots to kill him. There's one scene where David is playing the harp in front of Saul and Saul takes a spear and he throws it at David. Then the rest of 1 Samuel is, is Saul's plot to kill David or David bailing Saul out of a horrible jo- such a horrible job that he's doing. And then what you see in 2 Samuel, the very beginning of 2 Samuel, is Saul dies. And David finally becomes king. And you would think, okay, we've got rid of the bad king. We've replaced him with the good king, the one that God has anointed and the one that God has chosen to become king. All, all is good and well, but that is not necessarily the case. In, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the scene where David has to go and retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, who were the, the, the uh, enemies of the Israelites. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was something that was to be cherished by all of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be a physical representation of the very presence of God. All throughout history, the Ark of the Covenant existed 400 years before the time of David. And uh, Moses establishes this tabernacle and this temple where people would come all over Israel once a year and they would atone for their sins. And, and, and God would atone for their sins. So they would enter into this, they would uh, walk up to this temple or this tabernacle and bring their sacrifices. And then this high priest would come and take their sacrifices and then go to the most holiest place in the temple, the holiness of holies that was separated by a large veil that separated man from God. But in, behind this veil in the most holy place sat the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant was to be the very presence, the physical representation of the presence of Almighty God. And so for the Israelites, this meant something. And what happened was the Philistines knew this meant something to the Israelites, and they saw it as sort of like this is their superpower. So they stole this from the Israelites. And so this whole time in the beginning of 2 Samuel, the Israelites were trying to retrieve back the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Philistines, they hear that David is now king, so they wedge war upon um, the Israelites and David, through the help of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, defeats the Philistines. And now Israel has the Ark of the Covenant again. And here they are. David be- wants to celebrate the returning of the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites. And so David gathers up 30,000 men. We don't know how many women, we don't have any kids, but imagine 100,000 plus people there of Israel celebrating the return of this, this really precious thing throughout all of Israel's history. And that's the scene of 2 Samuel 6, and we start in verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadad which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ao, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ao went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Um, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took it took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God uh, struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. 
This is a way to kill a celebration by killing a person. Everyone's walking in, celebrating. This is what's going to happen. Then it's the Ark of the Covenant is brought in on this cart. It begins to, the ox who's carrying the cart tips over. Uzzah reaches out, touches the Ark. And what does God do? He strikes him dead. Why in the world does God do that? Well, if you know much about how the Ark of the Covenant was, and I can't go into all of the history here, but God had very specific ways that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried. It was to be, to be carried by hand by priest. Priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant, but what has Israel decided to do? They decided to build a cart to carry the Ark of the Covenant out of convenience. And so the problem was God was angry because they lacked reverence. They lacked fear before God. They thought, okay, our man-made device will be enough to transport the Ark of the Covenant from one place to the other. But that is not what God required of them. In fact, you even see earlier in, in 1 Samuel when the Philistines, they carried the Ark on a cart. It wasn't a big deal. But it mattered to God how his people were to carry the ark. He wanted them to carry it out of fear, out of reverence before God. But Israel did not take this into account. To them, the presence of God was just seen as a trophy. And this is telling of the level of fear that they had with the Lord. They saw the presence of God as more of an accessory than something that was really to be handled with reverence. Think about the things that you cherish and how you transport them. Think about just, let's just go with a casserole. Like when you have meals together with friends, a Christmas party, small group get together, whatever. You got a casserole, man, you handle that thing with care. You unplug it from the crock pot. You take, do you put casseroles in a crock pot? I have no idea. No, you, Yeah. Yeah, you get a cockpot, a casserole, out of the oven. There it is. You can tell I don't cook. I grill. Um, and you put um, a towel from the kitchen on your lap, and you take the casserole, and you gently place it on your lap. Your kids can't carry it. The high priest, right, carries it. And it's placed on your lap, and you have to watch every single bump. On the way, don't, don't, don't hit that bump. Don't go down that road. That's got too many potholes. we got to make sure this thing is preserved and carried the right way. And what happens when you walk up? Somebody opens the door for you. They let you in because this is a, a precious thing. And what happens even when, think about later on in life, maybe earlier in your life for you. You have kids, and the very first kid that you have, think about the first time you put in a car seat. And if you're a college student in here, You'll know what I'm talking. Just take notes one day. First time you put on that car seat, man, you want to strap that thing down the right way. You want to make sure it's tight. Is it tight? Well, let's sit in it. Jess sometimes sits in it to make sure it's really tight, you know? And then when you put the, car, the, 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 the carrier in the car and that little thing that locks it in, the first trip from the hospital is the most terrifying drive of your entire life. You fight the whole way. Traffic is crazy, even though it's really just normal. It just seems like the worst drive of your entire life. Why? Because you're finally carrying this precious cargo. And then on the way, and then over time, 
the level of our sensitivity of how precious that is, it begins to die down. As the kids get older, you're like, are they even in the car? Okay, good. I think they're in the car, right? They'll catch up with us later if they're not. You know, we're not even, you know, oh, we shot, forgot to shut the door, right? And so what, that's what ends up happening with us. This is exactly what Israel did with the presence of God. They forgot how significant this was to them. They forgot this is their very source of life. And we, before we get too quick to judge the Israelites, let's think about, do we ever do that? I mean, so we don't have the physical presence of God, like the, the Ark of the Covenant presence of God. What is the presence of God for us? Well, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit for every single believer who's repented of their sins and trusted Christ is given the Holy Spirit so that because of what Jesus says to his disciples, I'll be with you always. I'll send you and helper. That's the Holy Spirit. How often are we aware of the Holy Spirit's work on our life? Or how often do we take it for granted? Do you, do you invite the Holy Spirit into the moment where you're in sin? Do you invite the Holy Spirit into the moment where you're watching something on TV or watching or listening, look, watch, looking at something on the computer that you shouldn't? You say, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. No, we're not a, we don't want to be aware of that. We want to push away the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We want to say, I, I don't, I don't want to ignore that right now. So we do the very same thing that the Israelites are doing here. Every time we sin, really, we do what the Israelites are doing. We forget that God is always with us. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think that God is an accessory rather than the very one who sustains us and keeps us. And even today, many of us likely came here this morning forgetting that we would be in the presence of God with other people, with other believers. Not that we're making this day or this location any more sacred than any other day. But when we're with believers in Christ, we recognize, okay, we are going to come together to hear from God's word. We're hearing from Almighty God. We're worshiping together. Almighty God, we are together going to be in the very presence of God. How many of us went before us and say, God, I want to be in all of you this morning? And many times, church, our gatherings, even our personal time with the Lord can be seen as an accessory other than a time that we really value being in the presence of God. And this is what part of it means. This is what it means to be understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we are fearful of shame or harm or condemnation. Rather, Tim Keller says it best when he says, to fear the Lord biblically means to be in awe and wonder of his greatness and his love. So when you came here today, did you come with this expectation and hope? God, allow me to be in awe and wonder of your greatness. Have you ever felt that awe and wonder? Maybe in front of another person you felt that. Maybe you've met a celebrity before and you've been like, man, I'm so nervous, right? I'm in front of this famous person. I'm in front of this person that I revere, I respect. I haven't met a ton of favorite, uh, famous people in my life, but I have a sort of a bucket list thing um, in my, uh, of like people I would like to meet. And you always try to think about, like, if I meet this person, here's what I want to ask them, here's what I want to say. The reality is, if you finally meet them, you're not going to think of any of it. I had a chance in South Carolina. I was one of my favorite actors of all time. I met Bill Murray in Charleston, South Carolina. I was at a basketball game. My nephew uh, played basketball with his son, I believe. And here, here's a picture of me and Bill Murray. He was really excited to meet me. Um, <laughs> 
And you know Bill Murray from Caddyshack. Maybe you've seen Groundhog Day, Ghostbusters. That's kind of how people know Bill Murray. And man, I'm going to tell you, I had like thought, okay, if I ever meet Bill Murray, here's the things I would ask him. Here's one thing. Man, when I met him, like I was lost for words. Like I was like, uh, your movies are, oh, like, you know, I just didn't know what, and I didn't want to bring up Ghostbusters or Cat because I knew that everyone would do that. So I tried to go like more like, you know, some of the stuff that's like off the radar kind of movies. Like I really love Lost in Translation. You know, I said Life Aquatic is one of my favorite movies. And, and then like, he's like, great, great. And like, he doesn't even, he doesn't even make eye contact with me. And I was like, my wife loves you. I mean, not like that, but like she loves you. And like, I'm trying to like make this connection. But the reality is, man, I was just giddy and weird and awkward. Why did I do that? Because of fear. Not that I'm afraid that he's going to harm me, but I, I, was a, I was fear because of the awe before him. Now, how often, you can take that picture down, how often <laughs> do we really get excited about being before the Lord? How often do we say, Lord, I, I have in, in your midst now, I can, when I pray to you, I'm praying to the creator of all things, the one who created me, the one who formed me, the one who's known me longer than anyone has known me, the one who loves me more than anyone loves me. How often do we go to him and say, I can't believe that I'm I'm before you? How often do we come together and worship Christ with that anticipation and with that level of awe? How often we think this is who I'm communing with, this is who I'm talking to, or sometimes it's just, oh, it's just God again. But the problem is with Israel, especially with Uzzah, he took all of this for granted and it didn't go well for them. So what happened? The text says that God struck him down because of his error and he died right there beside the ark. Now what you'll find in this text is David saw this happen and he didn't like it so much. Look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed three months, and the Lord blessed Obed and all his household. Now here's the thing I don't want you to miss. David is an emotional guy. And he's a worshiper of the Lord. He worships the Lord both with truth and even with his emotions. You'll you'll see that David, it says that he was afraid of the Lord that day. But what does the text also tell us? It says, verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Now, I love the rawness of David's heart. How many of you before have been angry at the Lord? How many of you have been shamed yourself because you're saying, man, I can't believe I'm angry at the Lord because you think, okay, being angry at the Lord is blasphemy. We think that. But I would say being angry at the Lord is kind of normal. If you don't believe me, go read the Bible. Every single character who walked rightly before God, had a season in their life. They didn't stay there. They didn't stay angry at God. And it wasn't just for them to be angry at God, but they went through a season angry with God. Job, angry with God. You look at Abraham. 
angry with God. Moses, angry with God. Job, angry with God. You look at disciples, they debate and argue with Jesus, angry at God. You look at Paul, what does Paul say? You've given me this thorn in my side. I've asked you three times. I've pleaded with you to take it away, and you won't. Anger with God. And we go through these seasons, read Old and New Testament, and you'll be shocked by how many people go through a stage where they're angry at God. For David, it was up and down. You read the Psalms. Psalms like, I love you. I, I want to worship you. I, you are this wonderful shepherd that I have. You flip it over the next chapter. Where are you? Where did you go? Have you left me? I thought you loved me. You're running from me. You're hiding from me. And you follow the link. I'll just read Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. Oh, Lord, my God, do you think he's just accepting the sovereignty of God in this situation? I'm not going to allow my emotions to be a part of this. No. Throughout the Psalms, David goes through seasons of being angry with God. And I will argue with you this morning that this might be a, a, a bit strange, but to be real with God is what he desires from you. So if you're angry with God... Tell him, say, I don't understand this. And part of you growing in maturity is you coming to that realization and being real and authentic with God. Think about married couples. They say, we never fight. I don't believe you. Because there's something in your life that you are not facing that's real. You know why I know it's not real? Because you're both sinners. You're going to fight. So with us, we're sinners. God's perfect. You don't think you're going to come to a point where you don't agree with him? You don't like something that he's done in your life? You don't like some truth that has happened in your life that you're struggling with, that he's sovereign over and saying, God, I'm trying to trust you with this, but I'm frustrated. I'm angry. Anger is a part of the Christian life. Every believer has to go through a season of coming to God and saying, I, I don't understand this. Will you explain it to me? In the way that we interact with our own children, this way, in the way that God, in the way that we interact with our own children, if we were a bad parent, we would emotionally shut our kids down, right? This is the way it is. Don't ask me any questions. Just do it. Follow me blindly. Why does she do that? Because I what? Said so, Right? But if we really love our kids, now sometimes we have to just say that, all right? I'm not going to lie. But if we really love our kids, we allow them to ask us good questions. Why? Why, do you, why are we doing that? Why can't we eat candy at 12 o'clock at night? Can you explain this to me? And so they come to us with that anger, that frustration. And because we love them, we answer and we sympathize or we empathize with them. And that's what God wants from us. We don't stay in our anger toward God. He's sovereign. He's perfect. He's good. But he allows us and he calls us to come to him, even with that anger, even when we don't understand it. And guess what happened with David? He got to a point where he took those emotions before the Lord and he asked why. And from that 
anger, God began to mature him because he was honest with God. And here's where you have to end up. When you bring your anger before the Lord and he shows you that his will is perfect, you understand that he's sovereign and that he's good. You understand that his ways are not your ways. Psalm, or Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are, are uh, than your thoughts. Believing, being angry before the Lord happens to every single one of us, but staying in that anger would not be healthy for us and it would be sinful. So where do we have to end up? God, your ways are higher, but I'm going to trust you. So, so before David could fear the Lord, he had to believe this truth and accept that God was not like him, that God's ways were greater. And this is when David feared the Lord. Look at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed, and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So when David uh, went and brought up the ark of God from his house of Obed to the city of David with, with rejoicing, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, fattened, and a fattened am- animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, I love the scene here. This is like a parade where they're literally bringing in the ark of the covenant. And David, it says he's dancing with all of his might. And it says that he's wearing a linen ephod. Now, what is a linen ephod? Anybody wear a linen ephod? David a linen ephod was like a priestly garment. And I want you to see what's happening here because David is, has taken off of his royal robes and he's traded it in for a linen ephod so that he could carry the Ark of the Covenant. And because what's happening is because God requires a, a priest, uh, someone with priestly garments to carry the Ark of the Covenant, David has now dressed like everyone else. David has gotten rid of his royal robes to wear a linen ephod, which means he's just a worshiper like everyone else. And I love this because this is, shows you how undignified David is before the Lord. Now, you would think the first person in the world that should, make, uh, should be proud of David for doing this and showing that he's humble before the Lord should be his wife, but she's not. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, which is David's wife, but Samuel doesn't actually say that. Samuel says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window. Now, what do we know about Michael? Saul gave Michael David as, as as his wife because Saul was hoping that Michael, being his wife, would kill him. She's a sweetheart. Verse 16, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Was she happy? No, it says she, was, she despised him in her heart. She's the wife of David. Certainly she should have been celebrating with him in this victorious moment, but it says that she despised him. 
And it says in verse 17, And they brought the ark of the, of the, of the Lord and set it in his place inside the tent that David had set up. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished the offering, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of, of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, and a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake, cake of, of raisins to each one. And, and by the way, this is sort of a cake of raisins is an aphrodisiac. And so he's saying, David is saying, hey, our nation is blessed. We have the ark of the covenant, we can now multiply and we can now flourish. And it says, then all the people departed each to his house and David returned to Saul to bless his household. But, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, there it is again, doesn't say the wife. The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. By the way, that's called sarcasm. Verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself more undignified than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, verse 23 is very interesting, and we'll talk more about this next week. But it says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And you'll see why that's so significant next week, because you'll actually see who the wife that would carry on this this lineage that God has planned, but it wouldn't be Michael. But what is Michael so occupied with? Why is she so angry toward David? It wasn't this that he danced. It wasn't that he was a horrible dancer. It's not what she brings up. What does she bring up in verse 20? She brings up what he chose to wear and how he chose to wear it. In other words, she is more aware of what's going on socially and politically instead of spiritually. The text shows us that she was bothered that he wore clothes, that he looked like everyone else, that the king would take off his royal robes to be undignified before the Lord. That's what ticked her off. She wanted David to be more acceptable before others rather than humble before God. And so her fear of what everyone thought she now imposes on her own husband. And she judges him based on that fear. I want you to go out with your robe, and I want you to set the standard that we are the number one family. But no, you dress like everyone else, and she despised him for it. But David's worship before the Lord was unusual and undignified because he literally did not care what anyone thought. He, he, was trying, he wasn't trying to prove how spiritual he was. This was all genuine. It was all driven out of this all before the Lord. Reverent fear is what led David to worship the Lord freely. David wore clothes like everyone else. And if David feared man, he would have kept on his royal uh, garments and created a division between him and everyone else showing that he's better. And by doing so, he would have sought the praise and approval of others rather than being in God's presence. And friends, the fear of man 
is what causes us to miss out on the freedom that God has for us. You know what Proverbs calls it? He calls it a snare. Proverbs 29, verse 25, he says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says that fear, in a biblical, biblical sense, includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe. Being controlled or mastered by people, what they say, what they demand, what they want, worshiping other people, this means that we're living in such a way that everything you do is for the glory of another person. Putting your trust in people or or needing people where it replaces the Lord. And the fear of man can be summarized this way when we replace God with people. When we we were teenagers, what did we call it? Peer pressure. When we became older, what did we call it? people-pleasing. What's another word for it? Codependency. And this is something that ensnares all of us. Fear of man can cause us to change who we hang out with, how much money we want to make or spend, what social class we ascribe to, what brands we wear or what brands we drive And a lot of it comes down, if we're honest, to the fear of man. We want people to love us. We want people to approve of us. But here's the thing, friends. It will never be enough. You weren't made to fully be satisfied in love for another person. Now, hopefully, we can be loved by other people, right? We can be loved by our spouse. We can love our children. We can love our children. But our children are not the whole. Our spouses are not the whole. Our, our church community, our friends are not the whole. It wasn't designed to be. And so if we're living for this desperation of approval and acceptance and all of these things that we're living for from others, eventually we're living out of fear of man and not fear of God where we're all satisfied in his amazing love for us. And David lived this way. And that's why he danced with all of his might before the Lord, undignified in every way, because he didn't care what everyone thought. David reminds us where love is found. In his own actions, he reminds us of where love is found. David took off his royal robes so that he could be like everyone else. Does this remind you of anyone specific? What did Jesus do to obey his father's will? Jesus left his rightful place in heaven. He left royalty to come to be born as a baby. He left royal robes to be dressed in swaddling clothes. So that why? He could be like us. He could identify with us. And he could live this life to worship his father in the most undignified way. How did he live undignified? He lived poor. He lived sinless. How did he die undignified, sacrificially, as a criminal, although innocent? He, was, he died with other criminals and persecuted and humiliated. The of Christ did for us. And David shows us an imperfect picture of Christ who did all of that to show love. And when we embrace that love that Christ gives us, you know what it does? It casts out all fear. Part of Rachel's story 
even this morning when we heard it. You heard a woman who was afraid of so many things. And what begins to happen when she begins to embrace the gospel, the gospel becomes true in her life. She understands a God that she doesn't have to stay angry at, a God that she loves and that she knows loves her because he gave us, gave her his son. She says, I can trust him, and I can trust him because he died for me, and I can trust him that he's in control and that he loves me. That's what perfect love can do. It can cast out fear. And so this morning... My question is, what are you really afraid of? How much of your actions and your thoughts are driven by fear? And you know all of that is just a desire to be truly loved. But what a better place to look than the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Perfect love cast out fear. So we run to Christ this morning. That's our hope. Let's pray. We're so thankful for this wonderful truth that perfect love casts out fear. We're thankful for that truth that we can trust.